HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network since 2009. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. You're listening to Fields, the podcast. I'm Wythe Marshall. And I'm Melissa Metric. On Fields, we're bringing you the stories of people who are working in the world of urban agriculture. For money, for fun, for art, for justice, to feed the hungry, to green the city, or to uncover its history. In each episode of Fields, we'll delve into one kind of food that's grown in cities, one technology used to grow, or one project that teaches us something about our relationship to farming in urban environments. Moreover, we'll investigate all the whys behind getting up in the morning and working as a farmer in the city today. You don't need to be a farmer to enjoy this podcast, or even a foodie. We're going to tell fascinating stories and break down the realities and possible futures of urban farming to their elements. Hello, hello. This is Wythe here for Fields, and you're about to listen to an episode that we recorded when it first got cold. So late uh, 2022, and we're just airing it now because, uh, you know, that's how we like to do things. We shuffle around the episodes and make a season. So we're going to reference cold things, but right now it is really, really hot in New York City. Hey, what's up? Welcome to Fields, the unfinished story of urban agriculture with Melissa. Hi, everyone. Uh, and it's Melissa Metric. And I'm Wythe Marshall. <laughs> and we're rejoined by our uh, erstwhile co-host, um, Allie. Hi, everybody. It's Allie Wist. Uh, hey, thanks for joining us, Allie. Um, it's good to see you again. Wythe, I was like kind of confused. I was like, am I supposed to say my last name? Like Melissa <laughs> Metric. <laughs> Ellie West. I think we should just do it <laughs> differently every time. I love middle names only next time. <laughs> middle names only. Yeah. We're, gonna, we're just giving out more identity every season. Um, <laughs> Social security only is going to be season 15. <laughs> uh, yeah, but it's the dead of winter. It's not really growing season. I uh, still have some plants on my desk. The cat is still trying to eat those plants. Um, it is not the dead of winter. It's not the dead of winter. It's not, it's the not dead even of winter? winter yet. It's, it's not so even cold. winter yet. It's so cold. <laughs> well, Allie, it's probably very cold where you are. It's a lot colder where you are probably cold. than where we are. Well, sometimes where I am is not so different from New York City. So I'm about three hours north of the city in a town called Troy, New York, which 
Um, it's just outside Albany. It's kind of the one of the birthplaces of the Industrial Revolution. So now it's kind of just a small town that no one knows of because it's north of Hudson and everyone in this bothered to think of anything north of Hudson. Um, but it it's just like a kind of strange place because it has all these industrial ruins, like actually has industrial archaeological sites, which I've become a little obsessed mm. with. Um, but yeah, it's a uh, slightly darker, slightly earlier here. And um, I think we're around 20 degrees. So yeah, cold. <laughs> That's a little yeah. colder. I that feels like maybe winter. 30. Yeah. Still not winter. It's not winter yet. <laughs> it did snow yesterday. So I'm in an uh, interdisciplinary arts PhD program up here at Rensselaer Institute. And we had our big open studios on Sunday. Um, and it was a wild snowstorm and we still had a big turnout, but my car got stuck in the snow and I had to abandon it <laughs> at the gallery and I just got it today. So, <laughs> wow. Wow. Well, I'm glad your car's okay. And congrats to Ellie Irons for defending her dissertation. We should catch Yay. up with her too. Um, but yeah, Ellie, we, we brought you on, uh, you know, to hear what you've been up to. you, you, you left us for um, this archaeological ruinscape uh, that is also interesting, you know, in terms of urban ag. Uh, um, and yeah, you do all kinds of great work about food and ag. And um, we'd, we'd love to just kind of hear what you've been up to since season two, I guess. So um, do you want, is there anything you'd want to sort of start off with in terms of, uh, you know, diving in? Yeah, I mean, it's been a really interesting semester since we last chatted, like, um, I had been really sort of on this research trajectory to kind of at one point to see what sorts of plants will smell more strongly in a warmer climate. So that was kind of fun. And that was probably where we left off. I had been in touch with a researcher from Finland who was trying to identify an increase in volatile chemicals. VOCs are what we read as smell like our um, sense of smell detects volatile chemicals um, and an increase in those in certain plants. And she had identified the whole brassica family. So like cabbage, Brussels sprouts, I think mustard greens are also in mm -hmm. that family. Um, as, oh God, so much, so much is in that family. It's right? incredible. Broccoli, radishes, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts. Yeah. Kohlrabi. I think, I think kohlrabi. Yeah, kohlrabi. Um, so, yeah, all the stinky stuff. Stink, all stinky the... stuff. So the stinky stuff is going to get stinkier. Great. That's okay. the conclusion. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it, breaking I mean, it that down was, to layman's terms. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I did a little test installation of a room where I, I had the scent of like boiled cabbage because I couldn't find the scent of raw cabbage. I would have had to synthesize that. I didn't have time. So you walked into this room and I was running a bunch of diffusers, like these diffusers you get at TJ Maxx for like vanilla smell. But I put it, you know, filled it with cabbage oil, unfortunately, <laughs> for everyone. <laughs> and when you walked in, it just like reeked of cabbage. And I was like, welcome to the future. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> Why? Ooh, I'm going to ask you. Do you know, like, what is the smell of brassicas? Is it more like sulfury? Like, what is that smell? 
That's a great question. And honestly, I'm not a hundred percent sure what actually makes them smell the way they do. And at one point I had been in touch with a perfumer. If anyone listening is a perfumer, I've been trying to find someone to collaborate with, to really use uh, what's called mass spectrometry to figure out the smell of things. So then I can like intentionally adjust it or like make a perfume. Um, cause I don't know what the chemical is that makes them smell. And it, it is sulfur. It is sulfur, by the way. Is it? Mm-hmm. Well, there yeah. you go. We have an answer. So, um, yeah, I guess that's one of the things that will increase if it gets hotter. And, you know, the research around this, I found out the reason people are interested is they're wondering if plants emit certain chemicals or more of them pest control or could it have the opposite effect? Like if you know that cabbage is going to emit way more of this kind of volatile chemical, could you plant it next to X, Y, or Z? And that would actually, you know, create a kind of pest control that would be natural. I don't know mm. if there are any conclusions on that, but I guess that's why they're looking into it. Yeah. Or, that's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, or are the cabbage butter or the cabbage moths going to go completely insane because there's the smell of cabbage everywhere. I'm wondering if like, like I could see how that would work with like magnolias or herbs or basil, um, yeah. well, basil's an herb because a lot of times you do them with companion planting to like deter, um, pests yeah. and things like that. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I can even, um, the researcher Jarmo Halopenin, which I'm not pronouncing correctly they're Finnish and I don't have a very good Finnish accent um but what Jarmo told me in short was that um like increasing temperature is affecting plant physiology and what do they say activating the production of metabolites so the production of non-volatile taste compounds kind of interesting I guess I just never thought of that she um also said that many spice plants I guess, store volatile chemicals in the granular hairs in their surface. And so they're actually responding the most rapidly because I guess the stored aroma compounds are kind of leaked through the membrane that they're stored in. And so, you know, we can think of how many different spices might just like rapidly start smelling more strongly. And I just had no idea. Yeah, it's it's a big topic um, in terms of how climate disruption will affect like how crops store nutrients and will crops uh, generally the, the thinking is they'll be less nutritious. They actually are already less nutritious due to climate disruption and, and potentially other other factors in terms of like industrial ag and how what we eat today, um, even if it looks mm-hmm. the same, it is actually different, not due to um, natural selection. This isn't on the scale of evolution, but due to other other factors. Um, so even if it looks the same, it's like the plant won't store as much, um, material as nutrients that are like good for us generally. Uh, and mm-hmm. I, I, it's not totally surprising to hear that that affects smell as well, that, that some of those, those numbers are going to start to change. Um, and I wonder, like Melissa said, if there's a cold war where like as certain pests, um, a lot of pests are dying out, but a certain pests like do really well, will that then affect how plants are, are like, uh, Ooh, you know, like gassing. spider mites or something? Huh? Yeah. I, I, from, from what I've read and, and this is totally anecdotal cause I completely forget where I get this information from. Um, but <laughs> Ali, I did read about the VOCs and, and how, um, with climate change, there's going to be a certain point where plants are going to grow really well and they're going to, um, it's going to be like this, um, 
you know, really great time for plants where they, you know, the warm temperatures and all these things are, are going to be really great for them. And then there's going to be a certain point where it's going to get too hot. And so it, they're not going to do so great. Right. So there's going to be this almost like era of plant time where they're, you know, I guess putting out these VOCs and, and increasing smell and increasing all these other things. But after that, it's, it's, they're going to, and it's also interesting because if I, I don't know, one, one of the things that I think about in growing plants, um, also the taste profile of these plants, like for example, when mustard greens or when arugula is in really hot temperatures or good, they get spicier and, and those are in the brassica family because they're more stressed out. Right. So how is that going to affect the taste profile? And maybe, um, they might be producing more of these smells, but maybe if the taste profile changes as well, like for example, getting spicier, then, um, the pests won't want them as much, if that makes mm. sense. Yeah, that's actually fascinating. You know, I tried to pull up the article um, that Jarmo sent me and, you know, they were sort of floating some potential applications and sustainable pest management. But it's really interesting to hear your speculation on like how that actually might play out. Um, And I'll have to send you this paper because I don't understand all of it myself, but I really it was interesting to see them kind of suggest how the um, how they would you know, speculate that this could work for pest management, but, um, and also just that, yeah, there might be like kind of a heyday of like, I just imagine in New York state. Um, and we had talked to Scott Kellogg on this show who had said that he was planting pecan trees, pawpaw trees and persimmon trees, and not because they're good for this climate now because be perfect in like 40 or 50 years if we stay on this trajectory, um, and so, yeah, there'll be this moment in 50 or 60 years where it's like, damn, we can grow all this stuff we couldn't grow before. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that's sort of a narrow window then once it gets, and especially when you think of just like the breadbasket of the United States and like, there's a pretty narrow window until that's a problem. So we should start all of our like citrus farms now. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Play the long game. Yeah. And, um, and I wonder, you know, and this brings me back, Ali, to something else you've worked on. And I don't know if this will bridge into anything you're doing now or not, but, but the change in taste. Cause like, I think Melissa, you'd said, you know, what if it looks like the compound is called glucosinolate, the, the sulfur compound in brassicas that makes them, um, have that bitter, uh, mephitic flavor. Mephitic is the term I think used in gastronomy, you know, the, the flavor of sulfur essentially. <laughs> um, you might also call it butt flavor. I mean, it's just like, you know, uh, it can be very strong. Some people like it. I really like, you know, it's like that, like, uh, like, uh, it's the broccoli <laughs> boiled broccoli flavor. Um, but it, but it can build up like it's different in different plants of the same genus. Mm. Um, and even in cultivars of the same species and it's affected by pests and it's affected by climate. And I do wonder if that'll change taste. So if people are used mm-hmm. to a certain level of that bitterness, the sulfury bitterness being um, pleasant, and then over time, mm-hmm. like a high, they'll be more tolerant of a of a larger amount. Like, and and you know, and with other crops too. Like, if if some of this will in the long term um, change diets, or maybe it already has, and I just haven't noticed. Or you know, I wonder about that that aspect too beyond smell. Oh, yeah. Um, well, um, one of the other things, uh, for some reason, sorry, I'm going to jump in really quickly. Um, when, uh, again, totally anecdotal, cause I don't pay attention to people, to authors names at all. Great. Good. Great at names. But anyways, <laughs> um, I've heard that a lot of that, um, certain scientists are working on, um, uh, maybe it's CRISPR, maybe it's 
GMOs or something like that specifically for brassicas because brassicas are cool weather plants, which means that their temperature, the temperature range that they like is probably anything below 90 or 85 degrees. Like they don't really want to be in these warm temperatures. Granted, like kale and collard greens, they're, they're, they do fine. Like we grow it all, all year long, but things like broccoli and cauliflower and Brussels sprouts and stuff like that, like they may not like these high temperatures. It affects the way they grow. It makes them bolt. Um, and so that they are not going to do well when it gets warmer just because they're cool weather crops. So I've, I've heard of scientists specifically working with brassicas to make them more heat resistant in general so that we can have them in the future. Because if you think of these cool weather crops, they not might not necessarily survive when it starts getting really hot. I think about lettuce, um, lettuce, uh, supposedly, um, does not germinate when it gets above 80 degrees. Um, I don't know. I think that's kind of off a little bit, but it, it, if, how about, how about instead of me saying it won't germinate, it affects it to germination. It, it affects germination once it gets hotter because lettuce is also a cool weather plant and it bolts. And when it bolts, the flavor profile changes, which I actually didn't know. So do you know why, um, this, this is really gross, but, but do you know why, uh, the Latin name for lettuce is lactuca? No because lactuca comes from the word lactate. And when you cut a lettuce and it's bolting, it produces this white substance. Huh. Like, no. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Weird. So anyways, anyway, blah, blah, blah. But that's actually a really interesting uh, point about the flavor profile changing and the bitterness changing. I mean, also like shishito peppers or something, we know like the spiciness and flavor changes, whether it's like really hot or, you know, as it gets hotter during the summer, and so this has a lot of implications for regional cuisine, right? Like if you make a specific dish and nothing's coming to mind exactly, but if you make a specific dish and you're used to radishes being, you know, this kind of peppery or lettuces being a certain kind of bitter that like complements the dish well. And I'm thinking even of like the really particular kind of basil they use in Liguria in Italy that you make pesto, like the flavor might shift of that basil if it's hotter. Um, so you have all these implications for the flavor profile of certain recipes. And then also my friend, a colleague of mine, Jason Choi in this program is Korean. And he was saying that there's a really specific time of year that they make kimchi. And there's actually kind of a whole holiday framed around it. Um, I hate to say holiday because it doesn't, the English word, I don't think necessarily represents exactly you know, what the cultural practice is, but there's a specific time of year that they would get together and there would be, they would make kimchi. The problem is, is that the cabbage is getting, I think he was saying is, um, ready to be, is like ripe earlier and earlier. And so if they wait too long to make the kimchi, the cabbage has the wrong flavor. And so they're mm -hmm. having to choose between, uh, making it at the right time, according to how the cabbage tastes or prioritizing this get together at the time that it is like completely, you know, the calendar's oriented around mm -hmm. and like what an interesting and kind of, uh, I don't know, troubling. It really shows that sort of difference of, um, flavor that's coming out due to climate change. Well, yeah. And that also, um, going back to pest management, um, one of the huge issues is that the cycles, of bugs are changing um, because you are, or, or lining up 
the the life cycle of an insect with the life cycle of a plant and how that's changing due to frost changing and and temperatures changing and all these other things and it's like okay like the cherry blossoms come out and then the bees it's warm enough for the bees to pollinate and it's their like time of year but now they're they're noticing that it's it's starting to be off so who knows if there will even be kind of like what you mentioned wife like like pests in general because if the cycle's completely off in the stage when they're supposed to be eating the plants or you know like that's that's also this kind of shift um as well so it's like all of these timing and cycles and time in general is going to be kind of off so that's actually kind of interesting to think about too the concept of time and these cycles and the circular things and how they sync up but now everything is like just slightly like a twilight zone episode like it's like like just a little bit (laughs) i don't know yeah Right. It's that uncanniness of it being almost the same, but not quite. And like that, not quite aspect can actually be hugely destabilizing, but it's kind of hard to perceive because sometimes there are these really actually slight differences that then compound and spiral. I mean, I think this whole, um, a lot of the change you see on this global scale is so pernicious because of that, because it seems so slight, when you measure it over one day or on one farm or just one year uh, and then it spirals kind of, and it has this confluence with all these other systems and um, sort of ecological processes that Mm. some of which we wouldn't have even been able to anticipate. (laughs) Yeah. It's so funny. Um, I'm totally going off on a tangent, but uh, I've recently started watching lost for the first time. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Wow, I'm like I'm really excited polar bears for this. on this tropical island. <laughs> this is going to be a journey for you. <laughs> Very delayed journey. But just thinking, yeah, right. But just thinking about like timing and the altering of time and these slight shifts of like, why is there a polar bear on this tropical island? Like type of thing. I don't know. Oh yeah. Yeah. I can't yeah. wait for you to post on Reddit, uh, 10 years in the past about what you think, uh, <laughs> it's going to be great. I know. Can you go back to like 21 year old Allie and just have a really great conversation with her? She wants to talk to you. We're going to get really stoned, uh, but in the past, so it doesn't affect anyone yeah. listening now. It's not happening now. It's going to time. Yeah. travel. <laughs> wow. I don't know. What can I ask what led you to this decision? <laughs> Oh, just, just my partner was like, Hey, do you want to watch lost? Have you ever watched lost? And I was like, I've never watched it. And he's like, Oh my God. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's where we're doing this winter. So here we are, even though it's not here winter. We are. Here we it's are. A it's a win for urban agriculture somehow. Um, <laughs> as you said, <laughs> matter out of place, polar bears in the tropics, every matter out up of is place. down. Yeah. yeah. Time is weird. All of a yeah. sudden we could walk. Sorry. I don't know. <laughs> Oh man. Well, I look slightly out of place. Not quite. I, I had a student who was working on, um, coffee sort of like in and how coffee might shift because of climate change. And so I'm a teaching assistant for a class called ecological arts and one called biopunk that are taught by, um, Kathy high, who's an amazing artist. And our one student was like interested in coffee and climate change. And I really just like I had gone on a deep dive on this a while ago and it's like 
of the regions where Arabica coffee is grown are just getting too hot and too dry. And there's all these like fungus issues and like unexpected things, right? These cascades are like the temperature changes a little bit. Then you have an insect that changes or a fungus can grow there now. Um, and I just kept thinking of like all of the different versions of this. Like there's a very slight version where we just replace the Arabica bean and it's you know, it's somewhat noticeable, but maybe not so noticeable. We'll geoengineer it. And then, you know, there's other versions of, of it where there's like a whole coffee crash of the region. And then maybe we're growing coffee in North Carolina and it's really rare. And it's something like a wine tasting to go have like a real coffee tasting. Um, or we just grow coffee in a lab and that's totally normal. And you go to Dunkin' Donuts and it's like, try our lab grown coffee because it's way cheaper, you know? <laughs> well, yeah, Ali, that that actually reminds me because when you're talking about these specific um, plants that are grown at specific times in specific regions for this specific flavor profile, right? Like, um, I feel like that is one of the biggest pitches in indoor growing. It's like, mm -hmm. you know, I, for example, um, Oishi strawberries, right? Like, um, they're specific Japanese strawberries that are grown on, I don't know, either on top of a mountain or a side of a mountain or, or whatever in this region in Japan. And they're only grown there. And there's a company that learned how to grow it in shipping containers here. Right. And so now we get to get you know, 12, uh, or maybe it's six, six Oishi strawberries or whatever they're called for, um, I don't know, 25 or $50 or something like that. Right. And they get to test the bricks in the strawberries and they get to taste the flavor profile and make sure it's like all the right kind of conditions for them. So I'm wondering if this is also the larger, um, I don't know, just introduction to, oh, do you, do you want this flavor that you tasted when you were five years old, when you were in the country that you grew up in here, mm -hmm. have this, you know, like right. this was grown like, in this yeah. certain. That's, that's the dream of CEA, but um, I think it's pretty far from reality. It's something I've looked into a lot, like th this concept of terroir and how mm -hmm. do you um, use technology to try to, just as you say, like promise people any specific terroir imaginable. So there's like the dream is a kind of black box, like the, the food printer in, in Star Trek, right? It's just a cube where food comes out and it's exactly what you want. Um, and that was the the dream of the folded, um, you know, lab at MIT, the, uh, the open ag lab where uh, the, the, the principal investigator basically claimed, you know, you know, I'm going to grow exactly the flavor of basil on a specific mountain at a specific time of year in like 1961 in, in Italy or whatever. Um, and yeah, Oishi has branded around the concept of this specific cultivar and the growing conditions of the quote unquote Japanese Alps. Um, and they do sell, the prices come down a bit, but it's very expensive and they have packs as small as three berries up to 11 berries. So they have these sort of interesting number of strawberries you can buy, um, that are just perfect. I mean, they're like, each is the best strawberry, but they're very expensive. Um, and, and that is exactly there. That's, that's the best example. Maybe it's like a company saying, well, yeah, like it's expensive, but it is exactly the right terroir for strawberries. Like this is the equivalent of whatever the, the perfect mix of Bordeaux grapes um, in wine. Uh, so if you like, you know, these berries, like you should, you should go for it. Um, and I don't know if we'll see more of that. I imagine we will. I mean, it makes sense. Like there, there's more companies looking into this in various ways. Um, but I also wonder about people's acceptance to just radical change. Cause I've been thinking about the coffee example a lot, Allie, like um, I, I have friends who work on that too. And it's, it feels like 
on the one hand, there's this looming crisis. Just I'm obsessed. I'm completely addicted to coffee and drink a lot of coffee. I, I feel like I don't like Robusta coffee. I want Arabica coffee. I want the expensive stuff. But um, obviously, if it's $100 a cup, like I can't drink coffee then. Um, so I, it made me think for a long time, like, well, this is just doom, you know, when it gets that bad, um, I guess by guys, like I'll just, you know, I'll kill myself or whatever. I I don't need to sort of be in that world, but that probably will happen. I'll be a hundred years old or whatever, you know? Um, but then I thought, you know, that probably isn't true at all because people accepted, uh, losing the, the, uh, the, the gross Michelle banana, yeah, right? Like overnight. Michelle. Yeah. Like I people... was just thinking about bananas yeah. and even bananas at the supermarket. They are never, they're, they're never great anymore. That sounds yeah. so weird. That's like a double negative, but like whenever I go to the supermarket, they're green. They're already like kind of rot, like, you know, like bananas. Forget yeah. That. Well, and that is such a, and it's funny you say that. Cause I went to a banana farm in Miami over the summer and there is a guy the couple experimental banana farmers I talked to still grow the Gros Michel. It's commercially extinct because if you try to put it in the ground at any scale, you're going to get this fungus. There's no way you can actually grow at scale without this fungus in the soil eventually killing it off. But they have it in these little um, you know, planters and they can do it intermittently and get away with it. And I tried one and it really is sweeter. It tastes a lot better than the Cavendish that we have. Um, but I had actually done, I don't know if I told you guys this, I did a, a piece on this in May. Cause I thought it was interesting. This like smell of the ghost banana that we totally like after it went commercially extinct, you're right. Like people didn't really, um, notice and even though it it tasted very different importers made the bet the gamble that we would be okay with the loss of flavor and it was more important that the banana looked similar so there are other bananas that taste more similar to the gros michel and have that kind of more i don't know what to call it like bubble gummy or like fruity kind of flavor but they look super different and so they're like well let's just use a cavendish because it at least it looks similar. And they were totally mm. right. People forgot that the banana tasted worse and didn't even, you know. And so I made this plexiglass sort of um, hanging hood, I guess you could call it. And I called it the extinct aromatorium. And I made a little perfume of like artificial banana scent and fungus smell and dirt smell. Um, and, you know, because artificial banana scent is more closely... Uh, similar to the Gros Michel than it is to the one we have now. But yeah, mm-hmm. so you could stick your head in there and smell the ghost of the banana and like uh, sort of an allusion to the soil fungus that killed it. Wow. Ali, um, did I ever talk about, um, again, kind of going off on a tangent, but um, I used to, uh, my band used to have a practice space in uh, Sunset Park. And it's, it's when there were still a lot of sweatshops there and factories and things like that. Um, and whenever we would get out at a certain time, like 10 or 11, we would smell strawberries (laughs) or like (laughs) strawberry jelly, you know? (laughs) And it was just like, oh, I guess the factory's making like the strawberry jelly donuts this time or something like that. So it's just really interesting. That made me think about that. Um, but that, that like kind of, um, fake smell, but also it's, it's the, the smells that you're picking up are such intense smells like banana, yeah. cabbage. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. I right? know I'm, I'm torturing people. I mean, I made a, 
fungus and dirt perfume without the banana for this mushroom workshop that I have done Lisa Schoenberg and she's a sound artist so she has all these ways that you can listen to mushrooms and listen as a mushroom in in soil and we have like the grow blocks that we use sometimes and I also do these like smell mapping and I made this like fungus dirt perfume so you could appreciate a mushroom habitat smell and people go crazy for it actually I thought it was just going to be this weird thing that you could smell and but I mean, I think the dirt actually kind of smells nice. And it's funny, I'm getting like Instagram DMs of people being like, can you, how do I get the perfume? Can you mail it to me? <laughs> and I'm like, all right, I guess there's a market for weird smells right now. Maybe we're just, it's that moment where we're like, sure. Gen Z, <laughs> Gen Z into Gen Z. fungus, I know. I dirt love smells them. and death tones. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. 90s uh jelly sandals and dirt perfume. Mm. that's the vibe right now <laughs> yeah yeah where can i invest in this company that makes um awful smell perfumes <laughs> it sounds great it's really funny i mean the other thing this isn't food related but i've been on a asphalt obsession recently um and speaking of terroir i i was kind of interested in like if enough waste asphalt gets buried in the soil and there's a place here in Troy where there's so much waste asphalt that's been dumped. It's actually like layered into the dirt. It kind of like looks like asphalt wow. strata. And I'm like, are we going to have wine in the future that has the terroir of the like, tar <laughs> of asphalt? Like, will that maybe even be a thing? Um, but I was talking to an engineer at RPI about trying to get the smell of the asphalt because it's carcinogenic when it's actually mixed and you smell that, like if your road's being paved, but he promises me he can help me extract the smell without the carcinogen. So then I can torture people with that too. <laughs> oh, so it's really good to hold your breath when you're going through that, huh? Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's as much of a risk to a passerby as to the construction workers, like, oh but it God. really can, I can't remember the name of what kind of compound it is, but it can like actually alter your DNA after, if you inhale enough of it. So mm. Don't go sniffing hot asphalt is my recommendation of the day. Yeah. Well, they're, also, it, they're sorry, all carcinogens. Any, any, um, any fossil fuel. I mean, they're, they're hydrocarbons mm -hmm. are volatile and that, that stuff, um, causes, yeah. Uh, copy errors, like, like screws up your DNA. Mm -hmm. So it's, mm -hmm. it's part of, um, I mean, it's just, we're gonna, we're so far off from urban ag, but it, it's, <laughs> it's part of the whole problem of like, um, petrol capital, you know, petro necro capital is like, we, we live in a world that runs on, um, essentially like liquid evil, uh, mm -hmm. and, and everything about it, including the smell is like a warning to be like, do not engage. So, right. Right. I don't know. Just... Well, I mean, yeah, it's not so far from urban ag. Cause on one hand, I think you bring up a good point that like our senses are kind of telling us something in that regard. Like, the smell should be a tip off that it's not. And I think of all people like farmers are some of the first people who can tell you that like smell is actually like a very important signal or red flag or green flag, you know, in how you engage with plants, but also asphalt, um, and it getting hot. I mean, it creates such a heat Island effect that, um, at least the urban farmer here in Albany has, he has to plan differently, to plant being in Albany than he would literally even just five miles outside of the city because of asphalt, because of that heat island effect, the temperature um, of a neighborhood by like 15 degrees in some instances. That this is crazy. Is also, and to, thank to, you for bringing it back. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City, Long Island, and Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Do plants pick up, do they sense smell? Um, I mean, plants can sense volatile chemicals in their own Yeah, volatile chemicals. Yeah, Yeah. because it's like plants react. Like, for example, if um, I think I've heard this where it's like when lawn is being cut, um, insects react to that, but Mm -hmm. also plants react to that. Or if like a a tree leaf is getting chewed or something, Mm -hmm. those chemicals go out and then you could see the other plants responding. Um, yeah. to that to that so so that would be interesting if if plants respond if if they do pick up the smell of asphalt and kind of hmm. like oh it's going to be hot around here there's a lot of asphalt i smell asphalt or i just feel the heat but you know oh wow yeah like if plants have learned what that signals like what that smell yeah. means for them well and some some have right i mean we talk about plants that do better in urban contexts and rural contexts and i imagine some of it is i don't know how how specific our researchers have looked into this um i think a lot of those compounds are polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons um so the things in in oil and gas that that would be coming up but i imagine some plants are more tolerant in general of like funky volatiles that are like, you know, not good for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and then other plants might be less tolerant. I, I wonder, you know, and that might change our experience of the vegetation around us too. Like depending on how much asphalt alley to your point, like it changes temperature, changes, you're seeing the the city differently um, and you're seeing plants differently. And I wonder if that's something that design, you know, if we could push back against, not just through like more urban ag spaces, but also like all the, the urban planning stuff. I never see it in practice, but I see it like, on the internet, but you know, like just having holes for grass in the design of uh, driveways and even roads. Um, you know what I mean? Like just using less asphalt and having more green space and what plants you would attract or like how you would plan that if we had a, a very different world where that was a priority. Um, it's yeah. fun to think about. Well, I, there are actually these pavers that you could get that are squares. Oh my God. We tried that at Roberta's thinking, Oh God. Uh, but we're like what could people walk on where it could still be green and like i tried to do like time as um yeah then that didn't do so well but but they do have these pavers for like um fire roads and stuff like that where you could plant grass but else it's still you know these things that you could drive on so these square pavers that have holes in the middle where grass grows sorry just Mm. just okay no, that does kind of it's kind of critical that we have some better solution to encouraging 
ecology and urban environments, even, I mean, the problem is, is that we're so used to it having to be on our terms and being landscaped. And like, I mean, what I've noticed more and more, which I've never paid attention to in the past is landscaping fabric. And um, which is, you know, I'm looking at a lot of asphalt, like these black, this black substance that like severs us from soil, but we also use other black substances and surfaces all the time, like that landscaping fabric. And then also up here, they've been using this black plastic to like suffocate weeds. Ellie Irons was telling me about in Hudson, they just lay down this thick black plastic to try to get rid of, I think it's amaranth. I'm not sure what quote unquote invasive species they're trying to get rid of, but, um, she has been working with it and, uh, cause the plants are just busting right through it anyways, which I love. And so then she's been taking the plastic and making, um, pigments out of, out of other various invasive plants and then painting on it and made this like painting on the black plastic that was meant to suffocate <laughs> all mm -hmm. these plants. But it's interesting how much we actually try to suppress these ecologies and that we actually need to leave room for them in a lot of instances. <laughs> yeah. And especially these varieties that are very strong varieties. And I remember, um, so bringing it back, Ellie Irons was one of our first episodes. She, she, you know, was, um, we interviewed her for what would the new at the Epoch Seed Library. Seed Library. Yeah. Yeah. Next and, epic, I think. Yeah. Yeah. The next next epic. Sorry. Um, and um, and she was talking about in cities in general how these weeds or these varietals that were growing, or or pretty much weeds that were growing in the city, um, because of heat island effect, these varieties maybe the varieties of the future that could actually withstand climate change um, because they're already in such harsh conditions being right. in, you know, being in cities, being around us, being in the heat island effect and how these, um, and they're adapting and yeah. they're figuring it out. Right. You think about, um, I don't know, for some reason, when you were talking about that, I was thinking about when I used to live in Oakland and I saw all these plants popping up in old um, parking lots and stuff. And it was fennel. There was fennel really? everywhere. Wow. Just, yeah. And they have huge tap roots and they're really, really hard to, to actually, like once they establish themselves, it's like really hard um, to, to pull them up. But um, yeah, just these varietals that are just so strong. And it, it's like, it's like the first in this succession, right? Like if, if something is turning into a forest, um, what are the weeds that, or the varieties that kind of like these disturbed areas? And they're mm. the first ones to kind of take over these disturbed areas, um, because they're the first part of that succession. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's interesting whenever we all of a sudden realize it's useful to us, our whole mindset changes, which like is both good and bad. I think it was, there was one, I was doing a residency and the yard had kind of been unkempt and like, they didn't really replant it with like, you know, lush kind of suburban grass and it had kind of been left to, and so the whole backyard I realized was full of wild thyme. And I was like, oh, great. We have uh, you know, the time we're here. Um, and we do, it's interesting how we're oriented towards it once it's useful to us. Um, which again, like helps us engage in those spaces. Um, the project I do on mushrooms, we've really been trying to figure out ways to engage with mushrooms that aren't about utility. Cause it's kind of, people are obsessed with mushrooms right now. 
as it is. So you can kind of capitalize on that. But we try to get the conversation away from just how you would eat it or how it might be medicinal. And like, well, what if you could listen to the soil soundscape and it's not about your utility of the thing or like smelling it just for your curiosity of its environment. And, you know, mushrooms also can sense volatile chemicals. They have chemical sensing and smell is our closest analog to what a lot of other plants and organisms do in terms of chemical sensing. It's like when we say a shark can smell blood, we really mean they can sense the chemical and it's just, that's like our closest way of relating to it. Um, but yeah, it's just been fun to try to explore that with people because I think in order to get people even interested in these new spaces in both mushrooms and wild foraging and rural weedy urban sites, we did have to be like, oh, wait, but you can actually use it and we have a relationship. Um, and I also, I guess I'm also interested in like, yeah, we can, we can use it and cultivate that relationship. And also maybe we should just let the weeds go that we don't have a use for too. <laughs> yeah. So Ellie, can you just explain your project a little bit more, your mushroom project? Sure. Um, so like I said, it's a collaboration with Lisa Schonberg, who is a really interesting sound artist. And actually her primary work and her dissertation is on um, recording the sounds of ants mainly. She's an entomologist. So she does a lot of insect sensing and um, actually just recorded a bunch of sounds at a beehive on a roof in Queens. And that sound will be part of an exhibition at the MIT List Center um, with Miriam Samoon's work, who also works with food a lot. Um, anyways, I digress. So Lisa and I do this project called Sensory Kinship of the Third Kind. Um, and it started because um, I'm sure you've seen that movie, uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. So we've been talking about how mushrooms are kind of like aliens, like they are like between life and death. They're like between our world and the subsoil. They're this straight. They're not a plant nor an animal. And then we were talking about this movie and how they're trying to communicate with extraterrestrials and they can't in the movie. They can't seem to find any way to communicate through language. And then all of a sudden um, they are getting a response when they play these five tones. Uh, and of course, Lisa understands better than I do exactly the significance, but it's like five, um, it's five tones that are like a recognizable sort of structure in music. And that was all of a sudden what the aliens would respond to. So we're like, isn't that interesting that like when we reach out with something more sensory or affective, that's when maybe we can sort of have more of an understanding of an otherwise very strange life form. And so our first iteration was to play those five tones through a fruiting mushroom body and then pick it back up with contact mics and kind of see how the mycelium block uh, translated the sound. And then it has branched out to where we do exercises. We've done one workshop at Pioneer Works, which Melissa was um, an attendee of. And we did a big workshop in, um, at the Mesa Arts Center in Phoenix. And we basically have folks listen to the soil soundscape of mushrooms, as well as using electrodes to pick up the electrical signaling that mushrooms are doing. And we translate that data into sound so people can kind of hear what 
the energy that's going on in a mushroom body that you would never otherwise be able to perceive with your senses. Um, and then, yeah, I've done smell mapping of the mushroom habitat and there's one other, Oh yeah. Sometimes Lisa uses like the, the dead log or the soil that the mushrooms are growing in as an audio processor. And like, we send our human sounds into it and pick it back up. So once we did like Donna summer and we're like, Oh wow. Like we don't know if mushrooms can sense vibratory sound, but like how, how does our, how do our activities maybe impact their soundscape in ways we just wouldn't, you know, be able to know? <laughs> yeah. I love, um, the section that you talked about a little bit earlier of, um, the mics were on the ground or in the ground in the soil, and you could pick up what it sounded like to be underground in a way and hearing like human voice or, or whatever of like what the mycelium would pick up yeah. if, if, if we were around underground. Yeah. And I think what's the most striking is just how substantial our impact on a soundscape is. Like I had no idea when you put the mics in a rotting log that the mushrooms are on or in the soil, like I'll sort of move some leaves around and then we'll even like pour water to be like, okay, what might it sound like when it rains? And then a human footstep is like, whoa, it's like thunderous. And so you really get a sense of like how much we impact a kind of soil environment when we're walking around. <laughs> wow. Or using machinery or imagine yeah. all the things that we do in forests, especially with like logging or, you know, oh my goodness. Wow. Yeah. Or the, right. the impact of changing weather patterns too, like more rain, less mm -hmm. rain. Um, I wonder about those, like in art, these metaphors, like um, what's that movie, a quiet place or whatever, mm -hmm. um, or the absolutely bizarre novel flame alphabet. Um, but the, these ways of getting at some of the big changes and, and doing it effectively through imagining, um, you know, real, real sensory change. Um, and I, and I think what you're doing is so interesting to take it just in a direction, at least I've never heard of, you know, in terms of, um, yeah, fungi and, and like highlighting something that a lot of people just don't really think about, but it has all these interesting properties. So that's so cool to, to kind of do both. Like it's not just um, eating them, but yeah, taking them into this world of sensory play that it's often very anthropocentric, like what will humans hear or see or whatever. And it's mm -hmm. like, screw that. I don't care. I'm going to ask what the fungi do. Yeah. So that's super cool. Oh, I mean, no, the best... I... sorry, I, I just thought about like putting a mic up to a mushroom while you're eating it. Yeah. <laughs> I know everyone was like, do you hear little screams whenever, if you like harvest them? And I was just like, well, you're hearing a translation of electrical impulses, but maybe it would be more, uh, it would peak if I decided to start cutting them off this block right now. <laughs> but but um, that's not the whole organism either, right? Like you're harvesting yeah. a piece of it. And I, right. I guess I don't know. That's a question. Is that like, does it want to be harvested or is that I mean, like a weird way to say it too, you know? Well, like, you know, for example, apples like there or fruit, there's an obsession zone and, and the plant does make it easier for you to pick it off when it's ready because it is trying to get rid of that seed. But with mm -hmm. mushrooms, since they produce via spore, they you know, want to wait till they can spore before you would, you know? take yeah. it, I think, because that's the reproductive body. You're right. Like the organism itself is this giant mycelial network and a mushroom is just the reproductive organ. So it's not that critical, but it would want the chance to spew its mushroomy spores everywhere, <laughs> which it did all over my house uh, more than once because I didn't harvest it soon enough. And it was like, here I go. <laughs> but it's you know, the, the one like really adorable um 
part that I really enjoyed was like having little kids put on the headphones, listen to the translation of that electrical signaling. And, you know, I try to explain to them, like, this is just a translation. The mushroom isn't making this noise, but, but even to, and I think they, they get that. I'm just explaining like, yeah, this is sort of like the energy that's going on in there that you wouldn't be able to hear. And the one kid was like really into it and was kind of quiet. And his mom was like, okay, say goodbye. Like to me. And the little kid looks at the mushroom and goes goodbye. <laughs> but it was like, it had come to life. I think for this kid in a way that like, whoa, that's a living thing. You know, <laughs> that's adorable. so good. <laughs> well, um, Ali, what's next? What are you up to? What's, what's like the next project or, or is this, are you continuing the mushroom work? Like, what are you doing? Um, when it actually becomes winter, because it's not winter right now, we established that. We um, did, yeah. And in the spring, yeah. Well, um, so yeah, the mushroom project, while I love it, we did publish a field guide that we want to um, print some more copies of, but it's not actually my dissertation work. So I'll be focusing a little more on um, the Anthropocene, which is, for anyone who's unfamiliar, the term that... Uh, scientists and geologists have kind of suggested for this epoch where mankind has the biggest impact on geology and on um, kind of the the rock layers that will be in the earth strata in the future so between our um between the signatures from radiation from nuclear bombs everything from that to stuff like asphalt and concrete um and you know the impacts of the industrial revolution. What I've been looking into is um, the presence of pollen actually from certain kinds of agriculture, which are called phytolith, uh, phytoliths as possible stratigraphic markers um, sort of like in that rock series in the earth's crust that would be sort of a, a smoking gun for the Anthropocene and for our impact and it's been really interesting to look at. Um, I mean, corn and maize are pretty good candidates for a variety of reasons. Um, also, bananas have been suggested. And so what I've been doing, at least in the um, in my program, has been experiment with mixing cement in these sort of strata sculptures where I was layering bananas and corn and maize and other human waste like asphalt into these kind of strata sculptures that speak to the presence of agriculture. I'm going to probably continue that project and keep thinking about food and agricultural pollen in deep time. <laughs> Why is pollen a smoking gun? Well, it it's, it is one way that stratigraphers and geologists have been able to determine past epochs based on like, oh, this was the makeup of plants at this time. Um, but especially with, from what I was understanding on corn, not only was there one really specific variety that sort of took off and went from the quote, new world to the old world, um, but then also especially GMO corn has you know, apparently phytoliths are really distinct in shape and you can really tell one plant species from the other. So it would be really noticeable phytoliths all from the exact same kind of species all around the world in the soil all at the same time, if that makes sense. If you were looking back through the record and you would be like, oh, wow, humans have impacted the world so substantially at this point and terraformed substantially enough that like 
we can see it in what they're growing. And it wouldn't actually prove that we have, I don't know if it proves we're the biggest force on the planet, but it certainly would at least, um, delimit or demarcate our presence pretty substantially, I guess. <laughs> well, that's, that's super interesting. Um, I want to talk a lot more about that. Um, but <laughs> I also do have to go. Yeah. And then the other thing that I was thinking about, um, which I always, why well, I think you actually told me about this originally, the, um, artist group that, um, looked at chicken bones and oh, yeah. that would be part of the Anthropocene because, um, chickens are like, the largest, the the most populous animal yeah. in the world because we eat it and there's just chicken right. bones anywhere. So if somebody in the future looked at our uh, stratosphere or like our layer, they would think chickens dominate the earth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It everywhere. is like broiler chicken bones have been suggested as a marker for the Anthropocene too, because yeah, there's so many of them. And I actually made a bunch of pewter casts of like chicken bones at one point because of that research. Um, and I didn't, I mean, I didn't finish that series at all, but I have a bunch of pewter casts of bones from chicken wings. <laughs> That's great. The, the, uh, you know, you always want these things just, just lying around percolating in your apartment. Yep. Somebody comes over yep. and you're like, Hey, do you want a pewter chicken wing? <laughs> That's what you're all getting for Christmas. <laughs> yeah. Like, major oh, shout man. out to the, the pink chicken project. They do great work highlighting a lot of the, the same sorts of, oh, of yeah. discourses you're talking about in terms of um, how we come to think about deep time and what it means to be human and what it means to change our living environment uh, and all kinds of also at this point, you know, inter inorganic flows we, we sort of disrupted or altered. Mm -hmm. Um, and shout out to all kinds of people working on other, um, scenes, uh, you know, plantation of scenes, mm -hmm. um, or, you know, uh, Catherine Yusuf's, um, you know, command a billion black yep. anthropocenes or none. And all these questions are critically important. And it's really great to hear, um, how your art is, um, intersecting with a lot of deep thought in science and, uh, politics and also, uh, with agriculture and mm -hmm. how we might think about, um, things all around us, uh, things we eat that we don't necessarily, um, you know, always think about this way. So like from bananas to the phytoliths, uh, to the fungi, um, it's a fun time. So, uh, thank you, Allie, for the update. Yeah. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah. Anytime. Um, well before, so I guess any last thoughts, um, any, any last things that you want to shout out, Allie, anything you want people to do when they hear this mm. or look cool. at, yeah. Um, well, high bar. I guess I would, I would say to, yeah, like when we're thinking, if you're someone who looks at, um, the Anthropocene and those kinds of issues, uh, definitely look into the decolonial approaches. Like you said, Catherine Yusof's book, a billion black Anthropocenes are none. And I guess my, I have learned a lot about how maybe we should better call the attribute our ecological crises to capitalism, plantation, agriculture, and other systems, as opposed to just saying, well, all humans, because it's not all humans. So that would be my mm -hmm. takeaway, which is not an actionable one, but just to think about, put this in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> Thanks, great. And you know what you smoke? Plants. Plants yeah. that farmers grow. Uh, <laughs> gardeners grow. You can grow at home. Full circle. Smoke Thanks, some man. plants. Yeah, that's exactly. right. Exactly. Uh, no, that was great. There's a good mix of deep and educational um, 
I'm going to go Google a bunch of things about volatile compounds, uh, organics. Uh, All right. Well, thanks, Ali Wist, very much. And uh, we hope to have you back on. And maybe if you have any episodes you want to sort of uh, throw our way or or topics you want us to think about, please, you know, our our inboxes are open. Um, And uh, yeah, with that, I think, Melissa, any any last words, anything you want to shout out? Nope. Just thank you so much, Ali. It's so great to talk with you. Yeah. Thank you guys. <laughs> Brainstorm. Well, stay warm in the, in the, the end of fall, which it's still yeah, that's is. Right. <laughs> that's right. Will. We got a week left. Week left. Uh, and listeners stay warm in presumably the beginning of spring. Uh, so yes. take care, everybody. Bye. 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 Fields is powered by Riverside. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.